The Ordinary Folk Podcast is a project that highlights the fortitude of common, everyday people through storytelling. This is a collection of stories that showcases silent human resilience, heartbreak, and triumph. You can follow this podcast at Ordinary Folk Podcast on Instagram, and you can be a part of this project by reaching out to me at ordinaryfolkpodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so a brief introduction to my guest today. In season one, episode three, Anna came on and told her story regarding addiction. At that time, she had just started her journey into sobriety and had been sober for only three months at the time. She spoke about her experience with an ectopic pregnancy, growing up in a conservative Jehovah's Witness family, and realizing she needed to get sober. Welcome back to the show, Anna. Thank you. Hi, so happy to be here. It was in our first sort of sit down that you, yeah, like I had just mentioned, like you had just been sober for a couple of months. How has life gone for you in the last year? Because it's been about a year since we last spoke and I know a lot has changed. So can you sort of start, I guess, back then? Like, how has your life been going? How has everything changed and progressed for you? Yeah. Okay. So it's been like a complete 180, I would say. Let's go back to right at that time. So my boyfriend that I was with at the time, I'm no longer with him. He relapsed. I can't remember if that had happened already in our last talk or or not, but, um, yeah, so he relapsed. Um, I came home to him high as a kite. And in that night, he actually admitted that he had already relapsed two more times before I had even moved home. Um, and in those two times he had cheated on me again. So once I had that, uh, realization that, you know, this relationship that I thought that we had been rebuilding, um, on trust and honesty and sobriety, uh, it wasn't that at all. He had been lying to me this entire time and he really only went through the whole rehab and sobriety process just so that he could really win me back, which was my initial fear. So once that happened, I went through a really big internal battle. I was, I was really confused. You know, I had saved up a bunch of money throughout the summer to move out on my own and start restart my life if he wasn't able to stay sober. But once I moved back um, and I trusted that he was sober, I put that money onto my credit card. And then, of course, living with somebody that had was very well off financially, I racked up my credit card again. So all that money that I had saved was gone. Um, and I was left in this place where... I was feeling very scared. You know, I I'm sober, but I'm living in some with somebody that's clearly back in his active addiction. And I'm thinking how, first of all, like, how is this going to affect my sobriety? Um, and second of all, how am I going to get out? Because clearly this is not a place that I can stay. He turned into be like a pretty scary person. So I moved out in December, December 15th, I think was the day that I moved into the place that I'm living in now. So our talk was in October. So it was only just over two months, not even two months from then when I moved out. So a lot happened even, yeah, a lot happened even just in that two months. It really kind of, everything hit the fan very quickly. Before moving out, he started doing drugs like way more than he had been doing, even when we were mutually doing them together. It was like multiple times a week, a couple days in a row, like just nonstop. I think for him, it was a way for him to numb out the pain of losing me. But it was, it just, it turned him into this, this kind of monster. He became somebody that I really, I didn't want to spend any time with. We obviously weren't having sex, but he was trying so hard to have me sleep with him, to have me do drugs with him. Even he would come home at night and he would bring a bottle of wine and some weed, which those are my two like favorite things. So of course he's trying to entice me to use with him. And then he'd bring some cocaine and he would try to get me to do it with him. Like even to the point where he would have it like ground up on a plate and shove it in my face and be like, do a line, do a line. And I remember there was one night where I considered it and I was laying there and I was just so feeling so helpless and so broken that, you know, this relationship that I thought became was so much better was really all a lie. Um, and I considered, I was like, maybe if I just do a little bit, then, you know, I'll feel better. Um, but I prayed and I did some meditating and I came to the conclusion that that wasn't the right decision. I needed to stick with my path and do the right thing and focus on my sobriety. There was one night, I think it was about a week before I moved. I was honestly like terrified of him. Um, he was really high. I think he was a little bit drunk. He kept trying to get into bed with me. And I told him like, just leave me alone. Like, you know, I told you if you want to do your thing, just stay in the kitchen, stay in the living room. 
just leave me alone in the bedroom. Just let me go to sleep. He wouldn't leave me alone. He got into bed and he kept trying to touch me and, um, you know, take my clothes off. And I was like, okay, you need to leave me alone. You need to stop. Like, I'm telling you no, and you're not listening. If you don't stop, this is rape. And he was like, I don't care. Like I'm fucking you tonight. And I was like, no, like you're not having sex with me. And he looked at me and his face was just like, scary. And he was like, I'm going to fuck you. And I was like, no, you're not. And I don't remember exactly how I got him out of the bedroom, but I did. And thankfully I was able to lock the door. Um, and I kept him locked out of there for the night. So I went to sleep. I don't remember if I went to work the next day. I think I didn't because I was just having so much anxiety over the whole situation and, and trying to figure out, you know, where am I going to live? Um, how am I going to afford my life? Because I'd been living with this person who really supported me financially. And my money that I made was just kind of like spending money or money to pay like my phone bill with. Um, and now I had to go into a life where I'm completely supporting myself. And that mm-hmm. was quite scary. Um, I wasn't honestly sure if I was going to be able to do it. Thankfully, at the same time, my sister was going through a divorce and she needed a place to move to as well. So it was like, thank God, because we found a little townhouse close to my work and we have been there since December 15th. And so I stayed sober that whole time dealing with him, you know, putting it on my face and being completely anxious and depressed and just not sure like how to handle my life. And then I moved into here December 15th. Two weeks later was Christmas. My sister had already arranged to go and stay with my dad who lives in South America for Christmas. So I was alone. I was quite sad, really lonely. You know, I missed him, but I didn't miss him because he was just such a terrible person. Um, I was scared financially Um, And I started hanging out with a friend that was really not a great influence on me. And I did end up relapsing. Uh, It started off with me just, you know, smoking weed here and there. The weird thing is um, I didn't drink. I, I just smoked weed and I did cocaine. And in my mind, in my addict mind, I told myself, well, if I'm not drinking, then I'm still sober. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. It's insane. Not true at all. Um, But in my mind, I was like, I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous, not Narcotics Anonymous. So as long as I don't drink, I'm fine. Wait, can I can I ask a question as well? When you were living with your boyfriend and he was, you know, bringing like substances and alcohol into the home, how did you not indulge in in it then like part of it I think is like keeping the stuff out of your home which is like you were basically on the front line with all of it so how did you have the level of discipline to not I guess like relapse even earlier I knew that if I were to use with him that it was going to be a very traumatic night because whenever we would use together um, it turned into what I've now realized um, a lot of sexual abuse I didn't want to go into those nights anymore. I didn't want to have him forcing himself on me, forcing me to do things. And that kept me away from it because I knew that like the moment I did a line, the moment I had a drink, he was going to expect and force those things from me. Um, So that's what kept me sober at that time. I think more fear. Okay. Yeah. And that's probably why he was so deeply motivated to get you to use. Totally. Yeah. It was like, yeah, like I said, in the last episode, it was a very, it revolved around sex for him. It didn't for me. Like I was scared of those nights because now I've, I've worked with a psychologist and a therapist and I've learned that that was sexual abuse. Um, before to me, I was like, Oh, that's just Mike. Well, no, it's sexual abuse. Um, and I didn't really realize that, um, you know, you don't always realize how bad things are until you get out of a situation. Um, so that's, yeah, that's definitely what kept me sober there. But then being on my own, you know, I, I didn't have that fear of somebody forcing themselves onto me or making me think, doing things that I didn't want to, um, or hurting me. And so I kind of let my guard down and was like, Oh, it'll be okay. If I do it here or there, I opened up to my sponsor at the time I admitted what was going on. Um, and I actually was working with somebody who very dear to my heart, but not the right fit to be my sponsor. He was, he's an amazing person. I love him to death. One of my closest friends, but just not the guide that I needed at that time. I needed somebody that could tell me like, you're being fucking stupid right now. Doing cocaine means you're not sober. Um, and I didn't have that at that time. I, um, I did admit to my sister when she came back her trip, I said, you know, I did have a relapse when you were gone, but I, you know, I'm back on track and I've got things going and I did get back on track for a bit. I think it was a couple, I think I got two months of sobriety. 
How was your sister like a support for you at this time? Because it sounded like you guys had a pretty rough go at it, her her divorce and your separation from your boyfriend. Was she understanding of your situation? Um, no, she was a pretty big support, but I did I didn't tell her about my relapse until after I had kind of picked myself up, gotten myself back on track and gotten a couple weeks of sobriety under my belt. I think it was more from a place of shame. But no, she's a good support. Um, I know that she is always uh, talks about how proud she is of me and the work that I'm doing. And, you know, like she if I don't want alcohol to be in the house, she won't have alcohol in the house. I'm OK with it now. But there was a period where I was not OK with it. And she made sure to not have it in the house. Um, so she has been helpful in that aspect. Like in regards to your friends network as well, I think in the last episode, you had mentioned that you'd lost a lot of friends because most of them were people that you, you know, recreationally used with. Have you sort of found a new network of people to surround yourself with as well? I have. Yes. Oh my goodness. Um, and that has been a big lifesaver. That is like my one friend is somebody that really helped pull me out of my most recent relapse, which was during the isolation time. So around March, April time, she was somebody that had, there was no judgment in anything that I said or did. She understood where I was coming from. She offered support if I wanted it. She just listened if I wanted it. That one friend has been, like I said, like a lifesaver to me. And she actually is the person that kind of directed me to find a new sponsor, which is actually a lady that I had previously been working with. And I fired her because I felt like I felt like she was a bit of a hard ass and like a bitch, but she really wasn't. I just wasn't being completely, <laughs> I was just wasn't being very honest with her. Uh, and then now we're working together and she's like my best friend. She's amazing. Um, she has 14 years of sobriety and she's just somebody that I really, really admire. Um, so I definitely, I have a much bigger support system now. I have at least 10 people that at any time I could call up or text um, and they'll be there to support me. And that is something that I really didn't have in the past. Yeah, because you had mentioned that, oh God, what was the name of that community? She, she sell, Shelt? Yeah. Seashelt. Right? Yeah, she shall. Yes. Um, that the the community at the Alcoholics Anonymous there was, you know, quite more like close knit. Whereas when you got back to Vancouver, it was really you hadn't sort of found your footing. So I'm happy to hear that you have now with this with this new group. How long did you go without a sponsor since you mentioned that you had one who wasn't able to provide for you what you needed emotionally? Was there a few months where you didn't have anybody? Yeah, kind of. I, cause I still, the man that was my sponsor was, I still considered him my sponsor, but he actually went out of the program as well. Um, and he still is out of the program. And so by out of the program, I mean, he's relapsed. So he relapsed around, around basically around the same time as I did, and then hasn't really come back. He's goes to meetings here and there, but he's, he's doing his own thing. Um, I pray for him daily and like, we're still in touch, but we're definitely not as close as we were before. And I would say that there was a good three to four months that I had without any real support. And that was hard, but I also, um, like my most recent relapse that I was in, I really shut people out. Um, I isolated myself from everybody. I stopped talking to people from the program. I stopped going to meetings and I just didn't really give a, I didn't give a fuck. Like I didn't, care about being sober. I didn't want to be sober after that little bit. So I had relapse. my relapse lasted for, for two months, actually this last time, but it, it scared me. And my sponsor that I have now is the person that really helped bring me out of that relapse. Um, because I contacted her when I had stopped drinking, but I hadn't stopped smoking marijuana and I contacted her and I just said, you know, this is what I'm, where I'm at. This is what's happened. I feel like I made a mistake, you know, stopping working with you. Um, and I really want you to work with me again. I want you to help me. She was super understanding. She was like, just like, she's like my guardian angel. Honestly, I'm so thankful for her. And at that point she said, are are you ready to give up marijuana? Um, and I said, no, I'm not. I, you know, I've stopped drinking, but I don't think I can stop smoking weed at this point. Like I just don't want to. And she was like, okay, that's fine. It's your, it's your decision. I don't think we should start doing the steps until you have given up everything. She's like, but I'll still be here as a support for you. And that to me was like shocking because I had gone from thinking that she was this person that was going to be so harsh and mean to this person that I told I didn't want to stop smoking weed to. And she was like, okay, no problem. And I was like, what? Like where? Okay. 
fact that she was so non-judgmental really warmed me up to the idea of giving it up. And so what we did is we set a, a quit date. Um, I gave myself two weeks after those two weeks. Um, since then, I haven't picked up a drink or a drink or a drug. So that would that was May thirty first, I believe. And I guess we can also sort of talk about quarantining and the change that happened with AA, because a lot of people thrive off of the fact that it's a physical group meeting. You're connecting with people in real time, you know, right there in the flesh. How was the transition from going from like physical meetups with groups to then quarantining? You know, it was really difficult. At first, I kind of I was like, oh, this is great. I can, you know, sit in my PJs. I can sit in bed. You know, I can, I can sit and I can sit and vape like my nicotine vape because, you know, at, at meetings, obviously you can't smoke. And I was like, I can just sit here and turn my camera off and vape and listen. And like, this is great. Two weeks passed. It kind of like the one meeting that I was going to regularly every single day, it was at 12 o'clock. It's called the Nooner. People just got obsessed with coronavirus and it kind of turned into almost like a COVID anonymous meeting and not an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And all oh I heard God. about was... Like, <laughs> Yeah, it was really, it was really terrible. And like, cause you go to the meetings usually to hear like experience, strength and hope. All I heard was people talking about their struggles with, with being in isolation. And like, I understand that definitely has an impact on your sobriety, but if you're going to talk about that, still find a way to tie it into like the work that you're doing or, you know, the meditations that you're doing or how you're having a better con uh, contact with your higher power, something like that. But it wasn't. And it was everything was very negative And it just became something that I really didn't want to listen to anymore. And so eventually I stopped going. I was going to about three meetings a day at this point because on Zoom, it's easy. You can just log in on your computer and join a meeting. And it went down to about one a day. And then I stopped going at all um, because I was just like, screw this. Like, this isn't helping me. I just, you know, no, I can't see anyone. I'm stuck here also with my sister at the time who she is not an alcoholic. Like most people in quarantine started to drink, not excessively, but like she usually had a glass of wine in her hand. And that's something that I could never do. And so being, you know, stuck in close quarters with somebody for so long is hard for anybody, but being stuck in close quarters with someone who's drinking when you can't drink and that's all you're seeing that really, really got to me because like you said, like the, the face-to-face -face meetings, that was like my escape from the world of, of normal people or normies, as we call them, people that can drink or use without any consequences. Uh, but it, I was here with my sister all day, every day, and she was drinking and she wasn't like getting drunk, but she was drinking and it really started to frustrate me. Um, and, you know, I kept thinking to myself, you know, she's getting an escape. Why can't I have an escape? This like, this just isn't fair. I really let my addict alcoholic brain just kind of take over. And I remember there was one night where I really wanted to drink. And I was like, oh, I know there's liquor downstairs. Like it would be so easy for me to just go downstairs and grab a drink. But something in my mind told me not to. And so I didn't. It was like a week later, maybe I had been talking to somebody in the program. I think I was lying. Like, you know, they're like, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm doing great. Yeah. Like, you know, this isolation, you know, it sucks, but it's really not that bad and blah, blah, blah. And then something in my mind just switched. And I literally just thought to myself, fuck it. And went downstairs and grabbed a bottle of vodka, took a couple shots and like immediately, like, you know, the feeling when you drink some alcohol, like it's kind of warm and fuzzy and you feel kind of you know, at ease that kind of came over me and I was like, okay, like this is good. Went back upstairs and then I started feeling guilty and, you know, you just had two months again and, and that's gone. Um, and for me, like I, and it doesn't matter really how much time you have in the program, as long as you're there, like one day really is, is important. And like every single day is, is super important. So it shouldn't matter how long you have but to me, like, it, I guess it was a bit of an ego thing. And I was like, fuck, you screwed it up again. In order to try and get rid of that guilt, I went downstairs and drank more because I was like, well, if I just get drunk, then I'm not going to have to think about this. So I got drunk, had a bath, went to bed, woke up, felt super guilty, 
Um, I remember praying just like over and over again, like, God, please help me, like to help me do the right thing. Like help me find a way out of this. Like, I don't know what to do. And I called my sponsor, which was the man still. And I told him and I said, like, I, I drank and uh, I don't really know what to do. And then he, I can't remember exactly what he said to me, probably something of, of little importance. Um, he kind of said, you know, honey, it's okay. Like people make mistakes, just, you know, get back on track. Um, but it wasn't really, you know, what I needed to hear. It wasn't the support that I needed at the time. And then from that day on, I decided that I was not going to bother talking to people in the program. I wasn't going to go to any meetings at all. And I decided that I was going to go out and grab like a six pack of coolers. And I was like, oh, this six pack of coolers will last me like a week. At first I did a pretty good job managing it. I would drink maybe two or three a day. And because my tolerance was so low, having even just a couple of sips would give me like that ease and that comfort that I was looking for to get through my day with like not doing anything and being stuck at home. Um, and so I basically would just drink and watch Netflix. And then I added weed into the, into the mix and I started getting like vape pens and smoking a bunch of weed. And surprisingly, my sister had no idea what was oh, going okay. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was just going to ask, how did you hide all of that from your sister? Yeah, I got, I don't know. So alcoholics are very sneaky people. <laughs> yeah. So she said she didn't know what she knew something was up, but she didn't know what. And I kept that going for a good two months, but it, it obviously eventually escalated to the point where like, I wasn't drinking two to three coolers a day when then it went to like a six pack a day. And then it went to like a Mickey a day. And eventually I was waking up not knowing what had happened the night before you know, like, did I do something really stupid or did I just get drunk and pass out? Like, I don't know what's going on, but somehow nobody knew. Um, I think there was one night where her, uh, her friend was here who had been isolating with us as well. She, we were playing Uno. She said to her, like, I think Hannah's drunk. And my sister was like, Oh no, like she's not, she's just happy. Um, so I don't know, maybe she was in a bit of denial as well, but yeah. So for two straight months, I kept it up. And then finally I, um, one night I actually was talking to my ex-boyfriend. I was struggling for money because probably because I'd been spending it all on like booze and weed. I knew if I talked to him, um, obviously I was drunk, but if I, I was like, Oh, if I talk to him, like he'll give me money. And so he, um, he wanted to come over the night's blurry. So I still don't remember exactly what went down and, and how the conversations went, but, um, eventually he's at my house and he's got cocaine and wine. And I think weed, I just remember being up in my bedroom and kind of coming to, and just being like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like, I know I'm drunk right now, but like, I don't want to do drugs. Like I don't want to do Coke right now. I don't want to go down that path too. Like I know that I'm not in a good state right now and I don't want to make it worse with drugs. And he got quite angry and he was like, just do the fucking lie, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember exactly what words were said. Um, but the next thing I know, he grabbed me by my neck and threw me onto my bed and was choking me. And then he kind of snapped out of it. And he was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And ran down to my freezer and grabbed a bag of peas, put them on my neck. And he said, do that so you don't bruise. Yeah. And so like, this is not the first time something like this has happened with him. He's physically abused me before in the past, but even like, yeah, like I never really thought about how bad it was. I was just kind of like, well, that's how Mike is. But like, nobody should be like that. Like nobody should have to be treated like that. It's just, it's not right. It's interesting yeah. that you should say that because I've had other guests on the podcast where it's not even necessary, necessarily physical abuse, but something will happen and they won't register the, the like depth of what has happened until like even a year after. It just doesn't, they don't make the connection between like, wow, that was really inappropriate or wrong. I shouldn't have gone through that. Yeah. Well, even with this situation that I'm talking about right now, I think it was a month later when I was talking to my girlfriend that I was talking to about earlier, I just said to her, you know, I think, I think he raped me and like assaulted me one night. And she was like, what? And I told her the story and she was like, uh, yeah, dude, like that's, that's illegal. Like that's definitely, um, assault and rape. Like, are you okay? But it mm -hmm. took me like like a month, yeah, to kind of come to yeah. terms and realize how bad it was. I think part of me kind of pushed it out of my memory and part of me 
just again thought like that's just how Mike is. I mean, very often when it's not violent rape, people don't consider it rape. And especially if it's happening in a relationship and especially if it's done through coercion. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, like it's not like he, you know, held me down and, and like had sex with me that night, but like uh, we obviously like we did have sex, but it, it was not consensual. I remember many times saying like, no, I don't want this to happen. I don't want you to do this. Um, like, I want you to leave. He just would, you know, like put drug up my drugs up my nose and be like, you know, too bad kind of thing. And we woke up the next morning and I made him leave. I just kind of went on with my day and just didn't really think about it. So that, yeah, it was about a month later. I kind of came to terms with everything that had been happening. Um, and at this point he has been harassing me. Um, so he harassed me like for majority of the time since he's, since I left him, I did get the police involved and I did change my phone number. Yeah. Up until mid July, he was harassing me still. What I'd done was I was talking to somebody and I just said, you know, like, what do I do? Like, what do I do in this situation? Like I, mm-hmm. I, part of me is feeling guilty because I allowed him to come into my house. Like, even though I was completely not coherent and didn't know what I was doing, you know, I still allowed him in my house. And so part of me was feeling, you know, like I was putting the blame on myself and feeling like, you know, if I hadn't been drinking that night, then this wouldn't have happened. Um, which is true. But at the same time, like, I didn't invite him in my house to assault me. And so eventually I, I told him because he was non like nonstop calling me off block numbers, texting me off block numbers and just like wouldn't leave me alone. You know, get, I'd get calls from him in the middle of the night when he's fucked up and he'd be like, hey, like, let's do some blow. And I honestly was getting scared because at that point like I'd come to terms with, you know, like what had happened and what he's capable of. And I was like, like, what's my next step? Like, what do I do here? I don't like, I don't know what, what I, how to handle this situation. Like at first I was kind of scared and I thought that maybe, you know, I didn't really have any rights in, in this situation because I had allowed him in my house. I told him that if he wasn't going to stop harassing me, I would get a restraining order. He then went and made a fake Instagram account, sent me these very vulgar, disgusting messages. At that point, I was like, okay, I need to call the cops because like, he's not stopping. I don't know if he's going to show up again at my house. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I called the cops, the non, I called the non-emergency line um, and I told them what had happened. They started a file and they said that in order for you to start uh, any claim or charge for harassment, you need to have, I think it was seven days worth of proof. They said, like, you need to go on your phone. You need to find seven days proving that he's been harassing you. I had deleted our conversations. Um, oh, I didn't delete wow. any call logs well, because I just didn't want to see his name on my yeah. phone. You know, yeah. like, I don't want to open my phone and see, like, Mike. I also didn't think that it would ever come to this. So I didn't think that I needed to hold through, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I was like, okay. So I searched and searched and searched. I was managed actually to get 11 days worth of proof. Um, and I actually had messages sent to me that he had sent to my friends as well. So it, that helped. And then that night, the next night they went to his house. They told him basically like, dude, you need to, you need to leave this girl alone. She's told you to leave her alone for months. We understand there was an altercation a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. You're lucky that she's not pressing charges. Um, I decided not to press charges because uh, I didn't really have any proof that it had happened. I didn't want to have a battle against him in court. I just kind of wanted it to be done. I just wanted yeah. it to be over, you know, I just, mm-hmm. I just wanted him out of my life. And so they contacted him, told him, you know, you have to leave her alone. I didn't hear from him for about two weeks. Uh, and I was like, okay, good. I'm in the clear. Like, I don't have to worry anymore. Two weeks later at, I think it was midnight. I get a call from a block number and I answer and they didn't, nobody says anything. So I decline. I hung up. Second time they call again within like two minutes. I didn't answer. They call again in like another minute. And so I answer and all he says, I was like, hello. And all he says is, do you want to do some blow? And I immediately knew who it was and I hung up. Yeah. Like relentless, like just won't stop. Even after the police have literally, and it's not even like they just called him, like they went to his house and like sat with him and said, like, you need to leave this girl alone. Like you're lucky that she's not pressing charges against you. Yeah. And then, so at that point I called the cops and they sent someone to my house the next day to, to talk to me. And they had said, so you can press charges in the in sense of, um, or you can get a restraining order. 
But because you're not pressing charges, if you want to do that, you have to pay for it yourself. And I was like, what do you mean I have to pay for it? Um, And so I guess when you're getting a restraining order, you have to have a lawyer. You have to, so then you have to hire the lawyer, pay them for their time, pay for the filing fees. Oh, wow. I didn't know any of that. Yeah, I didn't either. So I thought I could just say like, hey, I want this person to leave me alone. Give me a restraining order. No, that's not, that's not how it works. That only works that way if you're placing criminal charges against them. Yeah. So they said like, you can, but it's going to be a process. Like I would have had to go through crown counsel and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God. And they said, your best bet right now is to change your phone number. They said, if he's only shown up that one night where he was invited, the likeliness of him showing up is slim. He's probably not going to come to your house all the way. Um, That's a far way to go. And so I changed my phone number that day. I applied for the crime victim services thing. It's like uh, you get some free counseling and they check up on you monthly just to see how you're doing and things like that. And then once I started that whole bit, so I was sober at this point once that had happened. I think I was maybe three weeks sober when this happened. So I'm going through like withdrawals. I'm going through the struggles of being newly sober again, which is fucking hard. And I'm going through the struggles of dealing with my ex-boyfriend harassing me and having to talk to the cops. Also feeling guilty for what had happened and, and blaming myself for what had happened. So I took it upon myself to get a psychologist. Um, and she was amazing. Like, honestly, a godsend. I'm so grateful that I, that I met this lady and she's helped me learn so many different things about myself, my childhood, you know, the reasons I I accept different kinds of love, usually bad love. Yeah. So like that instance with him that night, um, and talking to my girlfriend about it really, I think is what broke me out of my relapse because I realized like when I'm inebriated, I'm drunk, I'm not knowing I'm not in control of myself. I'm not in control of what I do. And the person that I am when I'm drunk that's, that's not the real me. And I don't want to be that person because that person allows really terrible, terrible things to happen to myself. So in a way, like as shitty as it was and as scary as it was, I'm kind of grateful that it happened because I don't know where I would be sobriety wise if that hadn't had happened. But yeah, it's definitely been a big whirlwind of a year. Um, (laughs) It's been hard, but I'm very grateful for the lessons that I've learned in this last year you know, I'm coming up to about, I'll be three months sober on August. Wow. August 31st or 30th, whatever is the last day of the month. And like my program that I'm working now is so much stronger than any pro like any program that I had worked in the past. My connection with my higher power, who I actually even call God now, which is weird because as I said before, like I'm so against religion. Yeah. So like, I'm not, well, I'm not like thinking of like a man in the sky. Um, like, I don't know what God is. I don't know who God is, but like, I know for myself that like, there is a, there is a something out there that's like mm-hmm. s- stronger than me. And before I, I used to say mother nature because I was so opposed to the word God. Uh, mm-hmm. but now I'm finding that when I pray, I actually do use the word God, which it's like, it's shocking for me, but it's very comforting and it's, it's helped me a lot. You know, it's someone, something, whatever it is that I can turn to at any time of the day and get support from. And sometimes the support comes in ways that I don't want or didn't expect, but it's still there. It's completely turned my life around. You know, I I have, like I mentioned, like good amount of really amazing friends. I have a great relationship with family. My father and I actually, we talk almost on a daily basis now. And he took accountability for a lot of the things that happened in my childhood and apologized mm-hmm. to it for to me for it, which was really weird, like so oh, weird, wow. um, so amazing. Like I never expected us to have a breakthrough in our relationship because I had really disliked him for so long. Now it's at a point where it's like, like I've always loved him, but like mm-hmm. I like I like him now. You know, he still yeah. does shitty things, but like I like him. I like talking to him. I like hearing from him, and that's something that I never thought I would get back with him. Yeah, so that's really actually that. to say a lot to um, like adult child relationships, because very often, even if there's reconciliation between the two parties, there's rarely ever acknowledgement of any trauma. 
So the fact that you got that was, you know, that's really amazing. Yeah, I know. I I got it. It was in a voice message because he's, like I said, in South America and I played it for my mom, my sister and not my mom. And even she was like, dad said that? Like what? We were both both shocked, but it was really amazing because, you know, as time goes on, I'm having, I'm finding like a less and less of a relationship with my mother, but I'm Mm. now building on my relationship with my father, which is something that I'm extremely grateful for. And I'm actually seeing someone. It's, uh, it's it's weird, but good. Um, he's sober. He is three and a half years sober. He was actually, and this is like super against the rules and like AA, but yeah, when I was in Seashell, I, uh, I had a sponsor and he was my sponsor. (laughs) And, um, so like when you're a sponsor, sponsee kind of thing, it's supposed to remain very professional. I don't know. Some people might think it's bad, but I mean, he's not my sponsor anymore. I don't see anything wrong with it, but he's just- now, is there anything against, cause I, I thought you mentioned this, or maybe I just learned this independently, um, about dating in certain phases of sobriety, like, you know, as in like before six months, you're sort of too fragile. Like, is there any sort of rule around that? Um, so there's like an unspoken rule. So, um, they say that in your first year of sobriety, to not get it, make any, uh, life altering decisions. So whether that be relationship moving, just anything that could be very detrimental to your sobriety, if it for say didn't go well. Yeah. So they do say, don't date in the first year. Obviously, if you're already in a relationship, then that kind of cancels out for him. And I we're actually, we're taking things extremely slow. I have never taken it so slow with somebody in my entire life, it almost feels like I am dating in like the Jehovah's Witness world because like they are so strict with like their rules. It's honestly really nice because like we kissed for the first time just this last weekend Mm -hmm. and we've been like seeing each other for uh, like two months now. Yeah. So we don't see each other very, very often because he does live on the Sunshine Coast in Seashell. But oh, we wow. Make- okay. So it's also a long distance relationship. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I go there a lot to try and see him. He comes here sometimes, but I like going there. So I, I like to go there more. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like we just kissed for the very first time last weekend. It was weird. I felt like I was this like little girl again, having like my first kiss and being all like awkward and nervous. It, to me, like it's, it's refreshing that I have somebody in my life that is interested in actually me as a person and not mm-hmm. my body. You know, like every other guy I've been with, I've slept with them within days of meeting them, if Mm -hmm. not the first day, you know, like that's just how it is. And so it's like to be with somebody that it's been months and I've only just kissed him once to Mm -hmm. me, like is kind of beautiful. And it shows me that he's like, he's a good person. Like he's a really good guy. Like he respects me. And like, I don't Mm -hmm. know if any of the men that I've been with have actually respected me as a person. Yeah. So it's yeah. And it just, that also goes to speak to the, the, I guess the culture of, you know, drugs and alcohol or even addiction, sorry, where, you know, sex is usually something that's flowing very freely in those environments. Um, oh yeah. You know, people, yeah, it's just like a uh, completely uh, instant gratification. Whereas now it seems like you're moving towards building a foundation, having a little bit of delayed grat- like gratification, but also at the same time, finding something that has a bit more depth than just um, a relationship that's wrapped around substances in a sense. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, you know, he's somebody that really gets me. He knows absolutely everything about me because he was my sponsor and I went through the steps with him. So he knows, yeah, just about everything about me. That too, to me, is something that is really heartwarming is that he knows like the good, the bad, the ugly, and he still cares about me and he still wants to invest his time into me. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's weird. And it's like a little scary because we're going so slow, Mm -hmm. but it's really, it's, it's nice. Like it's the first time I've ever done this with somebody. And so I think that's why I'm kind of scared because it's, you know, the uncertainty of how it all plays out. It feels like maybe for the first time I have found somebody that is right for me. I don't know if it'll work out. I don't know if it'll be long-term, but like for now it's, it's really nice. 
He supports my sobriety completely, even because we have known each other like so just for over a year. I've had feelings for him for a while and he's had feelings for me for a while, but we didn't talk about it up until about two months ago. And even now, like he's like, I don't want us to you know, rush anything at all. I want us to take things very slow because I want you to put your sobriety first. And I want to make sure that like, you know, that he's not doing anything that's going to make it harder on me to work on my sobriety. Like he wants me to have my sobriety be my number one priority. Whereas with my ex, if my sobriety was my number one priority, like he was annoyed. Like he didn't want to go to meetings. Like he didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to be sober. So this is all very, very new territory for me. Um, I'm still figuring life out. I'm still figuring myself out. And, but I'm learning a lot, you know, like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm doing meditation on a daily basis. I'm praying multiple times a day. I'm the big book, the AA book. I've read it, I think now three times. I'm doing another set of steps with my, my sponsor now. I, I feel like I'm becoming like this new person. That's not to say that there's going to be more bumps in the road. Who knows? Maybe I will relapse in the future again. I really hope and pray that I won't. But like you just, you never know. And unfortunately, this is an illness that won't ever go away. So I just have to make sure that I am, you know, working on it every single day and that my recovery is my number one priority. Another thing that really stuck out to me in your last interview was your love for your work, which you haven't talked about yet. So I was hoping we could end the um, discussion with you giving us a little bit of insight into how that's going. Has your work environment changed? How is it affected um, by COVID and everything like that? Because it seemed like it was a huge pillar in your life in our last discussion. Totally. I love my kids. Oh my goodness. I miss them so much because it's summer break right now. So, um, we're not working. Um, I do have a very close relationship with my one student's mother. Um, so we, me and her talk on like a weekly basis. She sends me pictures of him. She sends me videos. I did get the opportunity to go and visit him uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was a super hot day. They had the sprinkler on and we played with him outside and it was a really great time, but yeah, work with COVID has been weird. Like we did first, like the online working. Um, mm-hmm. so like the remote learning, but none mm-hmm. of my kids that I work with can learn remotely. Like they need hands-on support. They can't, mm-hmm. like, I can't video call them and be like, okay, let's do this. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So my work was like completely put on hold by COVID. Um, I did have weekly video calls with some of my kids just to kind of check in on them and see how they were doing. Uh, but other than that, I really had nothing to do. And I think that also was an aspect that kind of played into, um, my relapse was I, you know, everything that I was, my life was so contingent on and the structure and the routine was completely taken away overnight. Like it was all just gone. I was quite unhappy with that. I, I love seeing my kids every day. I love hearing how they're doing. And, you know, I also, I work in a very inner city school where their home lives are really not great. And so I was also very worried about how they were doing. Um, like, do they have enough food? Are they getting baths? Are they getting enough sleep? Um, you know, like, are their parents being nice to them? Cause this is a really long time for them to be at home with their parents. Um, and so, yeah, life work was pretty much put on hold. We did go back in the month of June. Um, but none of my kids came back. We actually had about five kids in each classroom, which was really weird. It wasn't normal. It was more like daycare. We kind of put a movie on or played games and we, you know, we couldn't get close to the kids. So we couldn't like give them a hug or like help them zip up their jacket. Like we just, we we weren't allowed to do any of that stuff. And so work was very odd. And I'm also, I'm kind of concerned, kind of excited, mostly concerned though, for going back to work in, in a couple of weeks here in September, because it's not going to look normal. It's not going to feel normal. Um, yeah. What are the provisions for that? So when you go back, is it going to be fewer students or what's going to, what is it going to look like? So right now, the government has said that they want 100% capacity uh, 100% of the time. So they want all the kids back five days a week. And they've basically said, without saying this, that they acknowledge that social distancing is not going to happen. For example, in the primary grades, which is basically where I work, there's about 20 to 25 kids in a class. 
and like, you know, how big classrooms are, they're not huge. You can't socially distance with 20 to 25 kids plus a, te- plus a teacher and one to two education assistants. Like that's mm-hmm. just not possible. So they did say that kids in grade four to 12 have to wear face masks, but only in the hallways, not in classrooms, which doesn't make sense to me because in the hallways is when you can actually be spread out in the classrooms is where you're actually close to one another. So I really have no idea what it's going to be like. They gave us two days. So September 8th and September 9th to come into the school without kids and to prepare. Everyone's very nervous right now. Uh, I know a lot of people are trying to apply for accommodations, which is basically the uh, school district allowing you to work from home, but a lot of them are being denied. So yeah, I'm not sure what it's going to be like. I'm really worried for my one little guy that's in the wheelchair because he's extremely immunocompromised. Um, If he, yeah, I don't know what would happen to him if he got it. Like, I think it would be very serious. You know, kids are dirty. They don't wash their hands as often as they should. We can try, but Mm -hmm. we don't. We can't follow them into the bathroom and (laughs) make sure that they're washing their hands. And yeah, um, yeah. So it's it's going to be messy. in complete, like my opinion, and there's no facts uh, backing this, but I don't think it's going to last. I think we're probably going to go back to remote learning by October, especially with just the spikes that we've seen in the last week or two. Like there was 236 coronavirus cases just this past weekend. Like that's insane. So, and then I think they announced today that there was 80 And yesterday Mm -hmm. there was like 60. So like we're getting, our numbers are getting back to where we were when they shut the economy down. But I know that the government doesn't want to shut the economy down and they want to have kids back in school and Mm -hmm. they, they want life to just kind of resume. Yeah. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I'm super excited to see my kids and to like, you know, air hug them from (laughs) two meters away, but it's, it's going to be very uh, very weird, I guess would be the word to use. I don't really know how else to explain it. Um, but there is one little girl that I work with. She's not special needs. She's just got a rough home and she's become a quite a dear part of my heart as long with a couple other teachers. And so we did take her out on some outings over the summertime. I think we would go, we went, I think we went three or four times. Like we went to the beach one day, we went to the park one day. Uh, I took her shopping one day because I had a bunch of money that was donated to buy her some new things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was really nice to be able to spend some time together, but it's, yeah, I don't know. Life is just, it's not normal. And I don't really know what to expect from this coming year. It would be really nice if all of this just stopped, you know, and and everything could go back to normal. But sadly, I don't think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I know. Because especially when you're trying to overcome addiction or sort of maintain sobriety, that structure, I think, is what people lean into, you know, the most, right? Other than their support network, it's like having that daily routine down and pat. So the fact that that basically evaporated overnight is like throwing a wrench into your whole operation of trying to remain sober, right? Completely. Yeah. I've had to now, um, I have like a little daily routine for myself because if I don't, then I find that I just will sit. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. For you to implement it yourself. Right. Yeah. Well, I had to, like, it got to the point where it's like, if I'm, if I don't start doing these things, you know, I'm going to drink and for me or for any alcoholic, like if you're going to drink, eventually you're going to die. Like it's just, it's not, you're not going to live and you're not going to, or you're not going to have a good life at least. So, um, you know, I wake up in the morning, I say my prayers, I go to a meeting every morning at 10 AM. Um, and that's for an hour. And then I try to get to another meeting, uh, at some point in the day, there's a meeting that I really like at seven 30 on Tuesdays. I have my home group meeting. Um, so that's like a meeting that I go to every week. I try to work on, um, my step work every single day. I've really gotten into cooking and, um, reading, which is like two things that I really didn't like growing up. So it's a cool little thing that I'm trying out. And I've actually also just this week implemented yoga back into my life. And Mm. I'm just following a a YouTube girl. Her name's yoga with Adrian, I think. And (laughs) she's like the most popular person. Oh, she's amazing. I yeah. love her videos. I actually <laughs> did one today and um, 
it's crazy how just like moving your body and focusing on your breath completely shifts your mood. And yeah, just implementing like uh, maybe because some of the videos are short, some of them are longer, but even implementing just as little as 20 minutes a day of doing some yoga has really helped me to feel a lot, a lot better. So I guess I don't really know how to close this interview off because it's a little bit different (laughs) than the other ones, but I guess I want to give you a moment if there's anything that you wanted to share or say that you sort of didn't earlier. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I got majority of everything out that I wanted to. My main thing that I have been feeling lately is gratitude, um, which is something that I struggled with for a lot of my life and feeling grateful for, you know, the small things. Um, you know, when I go to bed at night, I, I thank God for the fact that, you know, that I just have this life and that I've been given this second chance to rebuild myself and to get to know myself. And I'm finding gratitude in even like the small things. Like I was at Stanley park the other week and I sat there in the sun and I watched the bees kind of float from flower to flower. And it was just a really like a little blue, beautiful experience for me. And that was something that when I was drinking and using, uh, I would never even notice something as small as that. And I wouldn't even think to be grateful for something like that. Like I would be completely consumed in myself, um, thinking about, you know, what do I want? Where can I you know, get my next drink or get my next drug. But this life of sobriety um, has really given me the ability to just be grateful for the things that I have and not be constantly, you know, chasing after more. Um, Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people have will say that, you know, more, you know, more money, more things, it doesn't make you happy. And I am definitely learning that every single day. Yeah. That's such a great way to leave it off. I feel like I'm always like rambling on about gratitude and having a gratitude practice. And I find like not many people actually practice one. So it's really nice to hear you say that because I couldn't agree more. It's not about getting more. It's about noticing what you actually have in your life already. Um, Totally. And that very often happens for people after they've experienced uh, a loss or, or trauma or addiction is like, they kind of wake up and think, this is a gift. Like, this is not, this is not a joke. This is not awful or hell. Like, I'm very lucky to just be able to, like you said, like notice something very simple in your environment, like a bee or a flower or whatever it might be. Yeah. So on that note, thank you so much, Anna. Um, This was such a great conversation. I really like the idea of revisiting guests and hearing what the last year had or brought on for them. Um, So hopefully I can have you back on (laughs) maybe in the next couple of seasons. Right. And we can sort of track your, your story. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.